Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm speaking to children's author Hannah Gold. Hannah is passionate about writing stories which share her love of the planet. Her debut middle grade book, The Last Bear, was the biggest selling debut hardback of 2021, as well as being shortlisted for numerous awards including the Blue Peter Book Award and more recently the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Her new book, The Lost Whale, is out today. Hannah, welcome to Mostly Books Meet. Thank you Sarah, it's lovely to be here. It's great to have you here. I'd like to start off like I do with all of my guests by going back to your childhood. You grew up in Hertfordshire. That's right. With your parents and now you said an older sibling. Is that a sister or a brother? Brother. Brother. What was life like for you? Well, back then, it's quite a long time ago now. <laughs> Just betraying my age there. No, it was it was a lovely childhood actually. I think it was quite a conventional childhood. We lived, we were lucky enough that we had quite a, a large back garden. And my parents were really keen for us to have quite a little sort of freedom. Mm-hmm. So I just remember summers in the back garden, sort of playing on the lawn with my brother and my friends. There was a farm at the bottom of the road, which uh, had like, all these cows. I remember kind of going for walks across the cow field. A lot of that's been developed now, unfortunately. Oh. Yeah, and over the road we had like a paddocky type thing. We used to have some horses in it as well. So it was looking back, obviously I was really blessed and lucky, but there was a lot of nature and animals at my doorstep, which I think I just took for granted that well, everybody would have these experiences and this is just the way that it was. So Yeah, um, absolutely. If, if that's all you know at that age, that's all it is, isn't it? So it was during your childhood, I mean, you mentioned the fact that there was lots of animals around. Obviously, you discovered your love for animals whilst you were a child. Is that something that you kind of were consciously aware of happening or is it just that you just enjoyed being around them? I think a bit of both. I do remember going with my mum to this garden centre and we must have just gone to get some flowers or something and I'd gone to keep her company. And they had these, you know, in the old days, they had like they sold pets at garden centres yeah. and they had this litter of kittens And we both immediately fell in love with them. So we came home from the garden centre completely unprepared with this (laughs) tiny kind of tabby kitten. Uh, I just remember being fascinated by her. We weren't prepared for her, but, you know, we kept her in this particular room downstairs. And, yeah, I adored her. And it was just instinctive and normal. And then from that point onwards, animals, well, cats specifically, just became embedded in in our life, really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's so lovely and you had obviously the, you mentioned the farm at the end of your road you had the horse in the field opposite so you just it just sounds like you're surrounded by a myriad of animals which is just lovely and were you a big reader as a child yes yeah <laughs> and I like it because my gran and my mum both love reading so again it's one of those things a bit like the horses and the cows which were just so present in my life you know, at that age, you think, well, everybody's life is like this. Mm-hmm. So my gram, she used to like reading a lot of crime and, and Dick Francis. You remember Dick Francis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She used to read a lot of his books. And my mum, you know, read a lot as well. So, you know, you just model behaviours, don't you? 
Mm-hmm. And so I picked, oops, there's the cat. <laughs> the, cat just, the cat has just leapt on my lap because she wants to be part of it. Hello. I've stuck her claws in there. So I kind of, <laughs> I used to love going to the library with my mum and that was a real treat. She would take us to me to the library and I would literally sort of stack my library card up with six books, which was the max. And we'd come home and I'd put those books in an order, like a little towering pile the one at the top was the one I wanted to read first and then all the way down to the bottom and yeah and I was just a real bookworm I could read really quickly I think from a really long young age just because of my exposure to books and them just being such a sort of part of my life and and the fabric of my life I just love hearing this I hear this time and time again with my guests the 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 library going to the library that being like a real part of the routine I remember the same and it's just such a magical thing isn't it and I don't really even remember that many bookshops. So there was an independent bookshop. I grew up in a place called Tring. Um, there was an independent bookshop there. And I don't remember going to it that much. There is actually, ironically, that closed down a few, many years ago. But a new bookshop, Tring Bookshops, opened there recently. And they're fabulous. But I, yeah, for me, it was mostly about going to the library. Mm-hmm. You have three books. What, what, yeah. what an opportunity. Yeah, and if you're a real bookworm, then that's fantastic because you never run out of things to read. Do yeah. you? What was the first book you remember reading? Like really young book and probably made an impression with books like I think The Ugly Duckling. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Love no. that. I know. Yeah, something about that story, you know, obviously is so transcendental, if that's the word, which is just universal, it just connects with so many people. The whole feeling of being the odd one out or being an out an outsider and not being accepted and not belonging, and then going up and spreading your wings and finding yourself and actually coming back and realizing actually look I was beautiful all the time. And the simplicity of that it just kind of really cut through and even now when I go when I go to the sort of the local park here where I live now in, in Lincolnshire whenever I see the swans it's like oh look there's a swan yeah so it still now has this power when you look at a swan now to think back to that book over 40 years ago which you read when you were young which is amazing I think that's the power of the book yeah it really is isn't it oh lovely um and I understand that you had two ambitions as a child one to own a cat and two to be a writer. So it sounds like you've achieved those two ambitions. Yes, the cat is now, oh, she's just jumped off now. <laughs> yes, I really always wanted my own cat because I think when I was young, my mum and dad wouldn't allow the cat to sleep on my bed. She actually had to be kind of locked in the kitchen overnight. And I was like, well, I want to be an adult so I can have a cat that can sleep on my bed. And so it, I didn't get the cat straight away. I think I was in my late 20s or something by the time I got my first cat. But obviously, that was the thing. They can have the freedom of the whole house. <laughs> but then I soon became aware that actually having a cat sleep on your bed is, is both lovely and slightly annoying sometimes. Yeah. As well. Yeah, that's actually changed. Yeah. But yeah, also, yeah, the whole wanting to be a writer, I did briefly think, oh, maybe I could be a vet. But I just, I'm so sensitive, the whole idea of putting animals down. It's just not something I can even think about without getting teary-eyed. But yeah, that love of reading, I can't really remember ever really sort of yearning to be anything other than a writer. And always the children's writers. And even like when I'd gone into my 20s and 30s, the dream was to be a children's writer. So I've always been there. 
Yeah, it's always been there. That's yeah. fantastic. Weird because when I was born, when I was really younger, you know, like when you have your writing pen and you have a slight callus on your finger. Yeah. I always had that, even from a young age. It was like I was almost born with it. So it was really bizarre. <laughs> I'm meant to be a writer because, look, my fingers. Like, my fingers tell the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Like any dream, it took a while to come true, but it was always there with me. Yeah, because after school, you went on to study screenwriting at university um, before moving to London to work in film and theatre. So what, what kind of work did you do then? What, what, what was that all about? Yeah, so I worked at this actors agency called ICM for a little bit, and they, International Creative Management, I think that stands for, and they represented actors and some screenwriters. And it was kind of really full on. It was a really sort of thing thrown into this yeah, it was a bit of a horrible first job, really, because it was so intense. And I was like a PA to two agents. And it was like, oh, my God. And dealing with actors aren't the same as writers. Writers are lovely, if slightly needy and insecure. But actors <laughs> are like that magnified. And then after I left there, I did some work like for like independent just theatres. And I was critiquing some of their scripts which came in. So, for example, somebody wanted to be a writer. They sent their script into a theatre production company. And I'd be the person to read it and then say, well, yeah, this is worth pursuing or no, it's not worth pursuing. So I did that for a little while as well. And that's where I learned a lot about the craft, even though they were plays. I learned a lot about the craft of structure, dialogue, scene setting, pacing. It was, you know, you learn a lot just by reading other people's work, I think. Yeah, and get that feeling whether or not it's, it feels right or doesn't. Yeah. And why does that feel right? Yeah, yeah, why does this work and why doesn't this one work? And when you start, and I'm quite analytical, and by studying something and breaking it down, you're sort of unconsciously assimilating all this knowledge, which one day you put into your own writing. God, that's interesting. You'd never thought of critiquing theatre scripts to end up being... It's fascinating. It's so interesting. Now, you spend time in various parts of the world and then settled in Spain. When you were moving around various parts of the world, were you living in various parts or was that travelling? Not living. I did my TEFL, which is teaching English as a foreign language. <laughs> so I always had this sense of not really ever feeling like I belonged that much in the UK. Probably, that's why I related to the ugly duckling. It was just a feeling of like, this didn't really feel like my home and I couldn't really put my finger on it. So I was really eager to sort of see the world. And so I did... I I explored parts of America. We went to Mexico. And then I taught English in Costa Rica, which was amazing. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and that was incredible. I'd love to set a book in Costa Rica one day. That would be the dream. Such an amazing country. So beautiful, so green. And then I I lived in Spain. Again, I, I taught in Madrid for a year, and that was really incredible. And then after that, I then just moved to the south of Spain, which is much more of an expat community, but that really beautiful quintessential white village in the mountains, sort of with these sweeping views down to the Mediterranean. And I spent about eight years there. Sounds awful. Yeah, it was a bad life. Yeah. <laughs> I really had to do it. But at the same time, I was never earning a lot of money. And I was conscious of my friends back home in England really progressing in their careers mm-hmm. and really advancing in terms of financially. And I was kind of like having this great life, but not necessarily making a lot of money. But the quality of my life was really rich. Mm, sounds lovely. So what was it that brought you back to the UK then? My husband. <laughs> Pesky husband. <laughs> yeah, no, we, um, we, I, I think at that point anyway, I was getting a bit of itchy feet because I realised I was coming into my later 30s 
and kind of thinking, well, I've had this great life and I've met all these amazing people and I've got a great suntan. <laughs> <laughs> but I've not really progressed that much in my dreams. And there was a sense of I know I could do more of my life and I wanted to pursue my writing at the back of my head. I'd written a couple of young adult books, but nothing really had happened with them. And so this dream of being this children's author was there. And I just felt a sense of desire to be more ambitious. And as I was ready to kind of move, I wasn't sure where to. And I was kind of looking at various different places. And then I was living in a really tiny village, like a tiny, tiny, the tiniest of tiny villages. <laughs> and uh, I remember a friend saying to me, because you're never going to meet anyone there. And then one day, my husband came on holiday with his brother. and He came into this village and we met and... And that was that. And the rest is history. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so, and these days you live in Lincolnshire, as you mentioned earlier on, with your, your husband, your cat, and a tortoise. Yeah, tortoise. He's just so, four days out of hibernation now. So uh, he's called Arthur. I can hear the cat howling in the background. So if you hear the meows, it's her. It's I can't really hear her, but you never know. In the edit, it might come through. Yeah, it's because she, she, we brought her from Spain, and so she feels the cold. And so today's cold, so she's meowing because she's cold. So, yeah, bless her. Oh, bless her. Since we're back, obviously, you're writing full-time now, which is fantastic. Do you still get a lot of time to read as part of your job, or do you find that kind of gets in the way of your writing? Reading's changed. That's one of those things that you don't, you know, before you kind of get your contract, you have these real sort of naive expectations of what a writer's life is going to be like and I'm like well I'm swinging my hammock on a desert island (laughs) occasionally doing a bit of writing and then the rest of the time just chilling and snorkeling perhaps (laughs) the reality is it's actually really hard work uh, and there's so many demands which is it's just I'm not complaining because it is amazing. I do feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm so blessed. I'm living the dream. It is amazing. But mm-hmm. it is a job at the same time. And so reading fits into that bracket now because, as you know, you get sent all these book groups, some of which are amazing, some of which are kind of like, well, I'm not quite so into them, but I feel obligated to read them. And yeah. then the sense of reading to kind of catch up with what your peers are doing as well. And then outside of that, there's the occasional just reading a book for pleasure, which then I feel guilty about because I'm not reading my proof list. I have exactly the same guilt. Yeah, yeah, I think we all do. Every now and again, I actually take a new book from in the shop, you know, a shop that the book has actually been published. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why Why am I taking a book that, you know, there's all these proofs that are out of the back? Sometimes you've just got to do it. I know, I think you have to. Otherwise, you do sort of ruin the love of reading, don't you? And sometimes I just want to read a book, which, you know, by an author maybe I used to love got nothing whatsoever to do with the kid lit industry but I just want to read it because it makes me happy so and that's the joy of reading that's allowed yeah so what was the last book you read the book I'm reading for work at the moment is Francesca Gibbon's Clock of Stars which is the second one she was shortlisted for the Waterstones Prize last year and I really love her writing voice I also what else did I read recently on Yeka and the Academy of the Sun, which is coming out, just been announced that's coming out to be a Netflix film. Mm-hmm. And remind me, what else have I read recently? You mentioned that's the, the Shark Caller. Yes. To me. <laughs> the Shark Caller. Thank you. I read so many books, they just fit all into my head. <laughs> See, now I, so I, I know about the Clock of Stars because Francesca's fantastic, but for anyone that doesn't, what's the two-minute elevator pitch for the Clock of Stars? Two sisters that find this portal in a tree and go through to this weird and magical other land 
where they're trying to restore some kind of balance to it. I love it. God, that was perfect. <laughs> Is this what you do? You just write blurbs? What about the shark caller? I really love this book because I think I'm really drawn to books with really distinctive voices. Mm-hmm. And so both of these books have really distinctive voices. And the author of this book, and forgive my pronunciation if I've got it wrong, it's either Zila or Zyla Bethel. It's not her debut. She's been around a while, but this book really took off, particularly in the teacher community, which, as you know, on Twitter is so huge. And if teachers get behind your book, it's such a godsend. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book is set in Papua New Guinea, and it's about two girls that become friends. And the, the description of you know, the island and the sea and the central character, she wants to become a shark caller. I can't remember if it's her guardian or her grandfather, and she wants to become the shark caller. So where they kind of, they call in the sharks. It's just beautiful, but there's a really great twist to it, which a lot of people go on about. But for me, it's the language. The language is, is really, really special. It's got some heavy themes, some deep themes in it, but I think it's really accessible at the same time and it's not too dark. I love the fact that it's based in Papua New Guinea. That's fantastic. Was that one that you were asked to read for work or was that one that you chose? I wanted to read it because she came out in the same month as me, February last year, and she was getting like really great reviews and she was kind of really talking about the Twitter community and she seems like a really kind, generous author. And I respond to that and I thought, yeah, you know, what? the cover's really sweet and the the topicality of the book really appealed to me. Um, And I'm really glad I did pick it up because... Yeah, the language of it and the writing style and the voice is, is really rich and distinctive and a joy to read, really. Yeah. And she uses some of the kind of the native Papian sort of New Guinean language in there as well. She kind of puts a little bit of that in. So it's a good book to transport you to other places. Sometimes we need, especially at this time of year, cold and miserable. Yeah. Good to be taking somewhere different. Do you always have one book on the go or are you one of those people that can read multiple books? I prefer to read one at a time. I'm not great at reading lots at a time. Yeah, I like I like to do one task at a time. I don't like to do everything at the same time. I always like asking people that because some people are just like, my goodness, why would you ever read more than one book at a time? And other people are like, well, I read four at a time, and I just I can't get my head around that. Well, do you are you just one at a time as well? No, I'm probably more of a, like a two at a time. Yeah, because the nature of having to read so much for work. Yeah, um, I'll often have like a fiction and non-fiction, or an adult and a child's book going concurrently. Yes, yes, I could do that one, but not two children's at the same time. No. Well, I could do like fiction and non-fiction at the same time as well. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Because it's just uh, it's such a different way of thinking and processing things. I said to you, didn't I, just before we started recording that I took your book on holiday with me. I've just been on holiday and I took this whole wodge of books and it was such a varied selection. <laughs> My partner was kind of like, hmm, you definitely don't fit into any particular box, do you? <laughs> it's good. Now, I have a theory as a bookseller that um, everybody that's a reader or a writer has a book that has changed their life in some way. And that could be professionally, it could be personally, it could be both. Do you have a particular book like that? And if so, what is it? My book? (laughs) (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? No, I'm not. Um, I think going back to my childhood, the book that probably did really change my life in terms of influence the kind of writer that I was to become would be The Animals of Farthing Wood. Because it was like, I still think about it now. And I once saw this bookshop or this child's bedroom and they put this signpost up and it said Narnia one way and the animals are farthing with the other. And I was like, what a choice, you know, I'd have to go to both, you know. So for me, yeah, just having like a group of animals as your protagonists, them being on this quest 
to escape really what humans were doing to their habitat. It's everything really which I see echoed in the writer that I have become, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, the, the emotional beats in that story. So you've got this adventure I think every good book should have an adventure. But then you've got these really sad moments as well, on peril of when they're crossing the road and we lose some of the hedgehogs. Mm. I know. It's traumatic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's traumatic. And even now, when people talk about it as an adult, a bit like the ugly duckling, you're still transported back to the emotion of that moment. And so for me, at the time, I didn't realise it was life-changing. You just think, oh, this is the book I really love and I could read again. But now I realise, looking back, how much that would have influenced me on on quite a deep level about the kind of things that I wanted to write about and the stories that I was interested in and and the emotional elements of the book as well. Hmm. Because your stories obviously have animals as main characters and there's often other messages in them as well, which we'll come to with your new book. But let's, let's talk about your first book, The Last Bear. How did that come about? Yeah, I could talk about The Last Bear all day. <laughs> For the purposes of the podcast, I'm wearing my polar bear jumper. <laughs> Not that you can see me. No, the book came about because obviously it was a desire to be a children's author. But for a long time, I hadn't really done anything about that dream. Even though I had written, I hadn't really actively gone for the dream. So I'd written these couple of YA books and I'd done a reasonable job at them when I'd got close to getting an agent, but I hadn't got over the line. And I, for obvious reasons, it just wasn't quite edgy enough, is what they said, or it just wasn't quite there. And then we were kind of going through this quite um, you know, sad part in our life because me and my husband, we really wanted to have a child. And it just, for years, it just wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, you know, it just wasn't something that we were sort of being blessed with. And I was really broken and upset and, and really quite sort of traumatized by the whole experience. And it yeah. got to like the start of 2019. And I'm like, I just can't go through this anymore. It's breaking me. And that's when a friend said to me, she said, well, why don't you go back to your writing? You know, your writing could be a real gift for you. And I had kind of ignored the writing. So I'd got a rejection back in 2018. And it was like really heartbreaking and everything was like, oh, my God, my life's just going wrong on all levels. Oh. I know. And so then I thought, OK, you know, I am going to go for my writing. And actually, I'm going to go for my children's book because you get to a point where you can keep putting off your dream or you can say, well, actually, I'm going to give it a go. And there's that great quote by Benny Brown where she says, you've got to be in the ring. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. You've got yeah. to be in the ring. You know, Otherwise, you can stand outside the ring and criticise all the writers doing it. But actually, to be in the ring, you've got to have the courage to go for your dreams. Mm. So that's when I said, I'm going to sit down and write this book. And, and I remember sort of thinking, not have any kind of clear plan about the book. I hadn't even studied the market at all. I just thought I'm just going to write a book which is as as honest and mm. as truthful as I can make it, which is a real expression of who I am. And that was really my only agenda. And the whole idea of the polar bear, you know, had come to me sort of almost as if like it just appeared. And it was like, OK, well, this is the story I'm meant to be telling. Because obviously I wanted a child animal friendship at the heart of it. And then when I sat down to do my research, that's when I stumbled across Bear Island. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't even believe there's an island called Bear Island. It was named after polar bears. How amazing is this? And that's when all the the elements of the story literally just kind of fell into place. And Mm -hmm. the writing of the story was very, very quick. It only took about three months 
Wow. And it was a really sort of joyful healing experience. Mm. And all of that, that pain I'd had about not being able to conceive and have, not having this child, it literally just all of it went into the book, which is why I think the book is quite, A, I'm quite emotional anyway. It's why that book has got that real sort of deep emotional energy to it. It's definitely got that. Yeah, and children pick up on that, you know, because I put a lot of love onto that book and children, I'm really pleased because children do really love it. That's the feedback I keep getting time and time again. And I think they just pick up, you know, on an unconscious level, they, it bypasses the brain and they pick up on the love and it, and it just responds and then they connect to it, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you said that you weren't thinking about the market when you wrote it, because that totally makes sense to me now you've said that because the thing I love about that book is it's beautifully written and you know it could the story could have appealed to quite a young child but it could appeal to quite an older child as well so it's you can really tell that it's just something you just you weren't thinking too much about where it would sit and the thing I love about that the, the book I mean just it's beautiful anyway and it just looks fabulous on the bookshelf but it's just it, it's so different to a lot of other books within that age range there's an awful lot of you know magic books a lot of adventure books that kind of thing and having this something where actually is yes obviously uh, there's an animal child relationship which you know has an element of thought-provoking fantasy kind of thing going on but actually it's highlighting really important messages to children in a way that they almost don't realize they're receiving that message I thought when we we did a school event together didn't we Um, a zoom event and I thought some of the stuff the kids were coming out with in response to your questions or you talk about the book was so fascinating because they really just wanted to know more didn't they yeah and it's really inspiring because I always said right from the early sort of stages of writing I don't just want people to read the book I want people to ultimately do something after reading the book. And obviously not everyone's going to do that. But if I can just shift consciousness a little bit into a child's brain, into sort of thinking, well, actually, the animals out there are pretty much the same as us. So we should mm-hmm. be kind of maybe respecting and looking after the planet a bit more. Then I feel really inspired by that. But also it's that sense of, you know, a lot of the books were dystopian about climate change at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't really many middle grade books just were set in the present day about climate change and that's one of the things my agent was specifically looking for you know she was she was looking for that kind of book so when my book arrived in her desk she was like well she snapped it up but even when she submitted it to publishers I said are we going to submit it as a climate change book and she says no because that's not really even a thing you know it just wasn't big enough a market but um Mm. That I think I looked around and I saw all those children going for those marches every Friday, like hundreds of thousands of millions all over the world. And I'm thinking, there is a market. Yeah, absolutely. These kids care, but also caring in a way that gives them the ability to make a difference. And that's some of the feedback I get. It's that sense of, well, I've read the book. I know I know the different things that I can do to make a difference. And mm. it makes me feel better because I don't feel so powerless. You know, that's, mm. that's the child feedback I get quite a lot. So good. Anyway, we need to talk about your new book. Yes, because the lost whale. Yeah, the lost whale. Because the last best fabulous book. You've got your new book, the lost whale, is coming out on the thirty first of March. So that's you elevate pitch on this for people that haven't heard of it, don't know about it. What's your book about? It's the story of eleven year old Rio who lives with his mother, and his mother has kind of got these mental health issues, and she sends him across to America to live with his grandmother, who he's never really had any relationship with, and she lives by the ocean. And Rio is someone that's very lost and lonely, but also been carrying the burden of looking after his mother and being his mum's carer. And then when he gets to this place called Ocean Bay, which is this fictional town, he then 
quickly discovers that this whole thing about this town is everybody goes whale watching and he meets a girl called Marina who lives on a boat and they go out whale watching and he meets this incredible sort of gentle giant of the sea called Whitebeak. And then he kind of realises that his mum also knew Whitebeak because whales can live a long time. And he thinks, well, if I can kind of create this relationship with Whitebeak and send mum some pictures of Whitebeak, maybe I can help mum get better. And so he has this weird plan to try and help mum get better. But then when Whitebeak goes missing, he's like, oh, I've got to try and set out on this incredible adventure to try and find this missing whale. It's got so many different nuances, this book. It's got so many different layers. I think, first of all, obviously, that's, that's just the whale aspect. You know, it's beautiful. I, I think your descriptions of, of the whales in the water, especially the first time um, he sees them, I just think it's, you can almost, it's almost like you're there. It's fantastic. But I think also the element of the, the mental health issues with his mum, I think they're really well addressed because I think, you know, to try and explain that to a child or, or get the message across to a child that this, this stuff happens and kind of, you know, adults may find things difficult at times as well in a way that isn't, it wasn't too cumbersome, but it was very clear what was happening from reading the book. Where did you get the idea from? Oh, well, this book was a hard one to write because <laughs> <laughs> it is more complex than The Last Bear. The Last Bear in itself is a very simple story. Girl goes to the island because best friends with the polar bear tries to rescue the bear. There's no, there is the nuance of grief, but this one you've got the mum still in England. So you've got to somehow kind of get their story to match up and pair again to run it run parallel but I really wanted to write a book about whales because even before I'd got my deal with Harper Collins I had this idea that my next book was going to be about whales and I booked this trip to go whale watching me and my husband and just coincidentally I got the deal on in January and the next month I'd have this trip planned and, and oh. oh so you do it because of the oh. no no I already had it planned and I'd got a two book deal and we'd pitched the second book as about whales <laughs> just really loosely and I just had this book you know anyway so we went whale watching and it was incredible it's kind of featured in the book but not where the, the book is set in California <laughs> but we went to Mexico to the lagoons where the whales the grey whales they migrate down the whole Pacific coastline from the Arctic walkers in Alaska where they feed and then they migrate down the whole of the coastline to these warmer lagoons in Mexico where they breed and they have their calves and then when the calf is strong enough they swim the whole journey back but so we went to the lagoons and then we saw the mums and the calves and it's, it's a marine protected area there's nothing there so you go on these tiny little boats which only hold about 12 people sometimes less and the, the lagoon is just full of these whales. You hear wow. these, I know, it's incredible. It, it's spine tingling because you get the... Yeah. Oh like the noises in it all over. And then you see the whale come up and you're like, oh my God, there's one, there's one. But the thing about the grey whale in particular, which hasn't really been written about in children's books, I mean, we all like the humpback and the blue. I'm doing it for the grey whales. Is that they're called the friendly whale because actually in these lagoons, they're so curious about humans that they come up to the boat and they allow you to sometimes stroke and pat them. Oh, my God. And they stay by the boat maybe for half an hour or even an hour. And they're kind of going under the boat. They're nudging the boat. They come up to the boat. Oh, it is just the most amazing thing. And they bring their babies with them as well, with their calf. And it was incredible. But, you know, it doesn't happen every time. So we were, like, going out on these little trips and seeing it happen to other boats. We're like, well, we want, we want our own world. We formed this really, the six of us formed this really great friendship having met there. 
And on the last boat trip we took together, we had that experience where this whale came to the boat, stayed with the boat for over half an hour, allowed us to pet her. And then there was one moment where she was literally, I was at the front of the boat where Rhea and Marina often are in the book, they're on the bow. And I was there and the whale comes up and she's slightly under the water and she's staring at me with her eye. And it was just the most profound experience. It's this huge, wild animal. God knows how big. Stats are in the book. <laughs> but it's staring at me under the water and um, life changing. Yeah. That's amazing. I've been lucky enough to go whale watching on a couple of occasions, but it's always been further afield and in bigger boats. Not massive ones, but but bigger than, you know, ones that hold 12 people. That sounds like something to be added to the bucket list. That sounds unbelievable. I didn't really answer your question about mental health. I've just realised. But we had this experience of the whale watching, but we also wanted that we didn't want mum to go with Rio. We wanted a reason why mum would stay home and why Rio would go there by himself. He got to create these dynamics and, and stories. So I always knew there was going to be some issue with her. And I wanted, and then I ended up choosing to give her some kind of mental health issue because that's been in my family a lot. Like my dad had a breakdown when I was 18. My grandmother had a lot of mental health issues, even my husband to a degree. When he left his work, it was really, he had a period of it. So it's something I've lived with a lot in my life and understood to the degree that I can understand it and write about with an element of authenticity, which felt important to me because it's mm-hmm. been in our family. And I'm like, okay, and I know how scary and horrible it is and, and hard it is to live with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it worked really well. Like you say, the fact that the two stories were geographically split meant that actually you have that message about the sad things that were happening in, in Rio's life and with his mum. But then actually there was this whole magical world that he was suddenly experiencing. And especially when when you first meet him as a character, he just seems so sad. And, you know, he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, hasn't he? Yeah. And and then as he gradually goes through this, this adventure, things things change for him. It's, it's fantastic. He, yeah, he finds himself on the whole being on the ocean and the way and he confronts his biggest fear. There's so many metaphors in it. I mean, but he does confront his biggest fears. And the whole idea of like when we meet the whale and they both free each other in a sense, that's mm-hmm. what they become free. And that's where I was always trying to get to in the book. Well, you succeeded. It was very good. So you mentioned that this was quite difficult. So how did the writing of this book compare with the writing of The Last Bear? Oh, it was so much more difficult because A, it was a more complex story, as I've said, mm-hmm. and, and just getting the structure of the story. And because we originally had the idea to set the book in Mexico, but we transplanted it to the coast of California, meant that I was sort of, oh, okay, well, I've thrown it a little bit in terms of my structure, mm-hmm. trying to get the mum angle in. And I sometimes have a habit of wanting to avoid the difficult scenes. So I have all these scenes happening off page. <laughs> and the editor will go, no, we need to actually see that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so it's structurally was difficult and I think a lot of the time in the first draft I didn't really know where I was going with it mm-hmm. but then when I kind of um I don't want to give the story away but yeah. the whole point of like the final few scenes once I'd written a really rough first draft and realized that was where I was getting to I could then go back and do the editing and, yeah. uh, and make it uh, much more of a journey to get there yeah move in that direction so we're recording this uh, in February and your book's not published until March. So we're currently in the kind of the calm before the storm. How are you feeling about the publication of book number two? You know, I was really nervous when I was writing it and I was constantly asking my editor and agent, what, is it any good? 
I said, please don't let me publish something which isn't any good, you know. And I thought they were just kind of being kind to me. <laughs> and then actually, my my I know, my editor actually left at the end of last year. And she was like my beloved editor and I was so close to her. And, and then she left and I got a new editor. And actually, so my new editor read the book and she says, you know, Hannah, I just think it's amazing. You know, she says, I think you're one of the best writers out there. And I'm like, oh, well, she would say that anyway, because <laughs> she's my new editor. But it was like, oh, somebody else has read it and liked it mm-hmm. and thought it was OK. And then it got editor's choice in the bookseller with Theo yeah. Noble. And I thought, oh, um, you know, maybe it's better than I think it is. Maybe, maybe it's all right. Yeah. And so and, and then I've started to get the early reviews in and they've been really favourable. And it's kind of really interesting to see how people respond to the book, what they're picking up on. I always find that fascinating because some things people pick up on, I wasn't even aware of myself. And it's kind of nice to see that they feel like I'm establishing a voice or a place in the market. And it's really exciting because this is a book, as you know, which hasn't even got the illustrations in. So people are purely responding to the words Mm -hmm. and you have to wait till you see the illustrations. I can't wait to see the illustrations. I'm so excited because the illustrator you work with is is fabulous. Levi Pinfold, his his illustrations are just out of this world. Amazing. I just there's been a few scenes where especially um there's certain points where you know there's just actually a small bit of writing there's just this huge area like waiting illustration I'm like that's like going to be oh, so, it's so cheeky because they send out the proofs without the illustrations but I've seen the illustrations you know what Sarah I actually think they're better than Bear oh my god I really do and I've said this a few times because in Bear they are amazing but I would say 80% of the illustrations in the last bear are of bear in April. And so you're sort of different variations on the bear. Whereas in the lost whale, because the whale is not in it as much, just because mm-hmm. it's hard to have a whale in the book the whole time unless you're in the water with it, which is the other <laughs> issue of writing it. It was like we got more pictures of the boat. We got pictures of Rio and his grandmother. We've got pictures of when they see all the dolphins. Oh. My favourite one, when, when they're bow surfing with the dolphins. Yeah. There's a picture yeah. of like them on the boat with the dolphins. And it is so lifelike. It's incredible. And then we've got like a double, double page illustration. So it's two double pages. And the first double is the whale's head. And the second double is the whale's tail. Oh, yeah, it's incredible, incredible. They're amazing. Do you know what I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing is I'm looking forward to seeing what the grandmother looks like. Yes, she's quite tall and she's kind of got like this short, wiry hair and she's quite tall and lanky and she Mm. sort of towers over Rio. But the scene where they hug on the boat, oh, that one's, yeah, that one's so (laughs) moving. Can't wait, can't wait. And even the picture at the end in the epilogue and we've got, I don't want to get rid of the face. Yeah. But that one is just amazing as well. Yeah. Oh, just, yeah, stop talking. (laughs) No giveaways. I I just, I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, The Last Bear was actually brilliant and was won a lot of accolades and and rightfully so. So I'm sure that you're going to get. Yes. I've actually got my um, Waterstone shortlisted sticker on. (laughs) When we sent you the promo stuff for this, it wasn't announced. So it's. Short Waterstones shortlisted as well, and that came out last week. So, so you, well, congratulations! You've got you've got all your branding on, and yeah. and, and people can't see it, which is I terrible. Know, I, know. <laughs> I, I did these Spanish interviews, and I wore it for the the whole Spanish interview. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely lovely chatting with you today. It's been nice to see you again. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to work together again I'd in the future. To, yeah, because I love to score visits. So, so, and to do one in person would be amazing. And, yes, yeah. absolutely. You haven't had the chance to do that yet. So yeah. this time around. Yeah. Best of luck with the publication of Lost Well. I don't think you're going to need it, but thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. It's always lovely to talk. So thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.